0: You certainly wouldn't repel with somebody who's not really good at knots. Well, it's the same thing with trench. There's a lot of things that we can plan for and avoid, but trench is one of the ones where if you're doing a lot of rescue training, especially in trench, you really have to have your eyes dotted and your T's crossed.
1: Enchanted Sky Media. Media.
0: sky studios in prescott arizona this is code three the firefighters podcast hosted by award-winning journalist scott Orr. code three features interviews with leading members of the fire service discussing firefighting strategies tactics and other topics you need to know more about now here's scott
1: that's right and i will not let parkinson stop me Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. You are listening to the show for and about firefighters. Let's get started. Well, if you look around construction sites, you're likely to see a lot of trenches. If there's an underground line of any type, it takes a trench to put it in or to maintain it. Unfortunately, sometimes people get trapped in them and not all trenches are constructed to standards. That makes the job of rescuing a worker from them even more hazardous. There are a lot of factors to consider if you're first in at a trench rescue scene. Here to discuss some important ones is Mike Daly. He's a lieutenant with the Monroe Township Fire District Number no. 3 in New Jersey. He holds a Master Fire Instructor Certification from the ISFSI and is an instructor at the Middlesex County Fire Academy. Mike's also a member of New Jersey Task Force One. And Michael Daly joins me now. Welcome to Code 3.
0: Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the invite. Thanks for having me back.
1: So let's get right into it. Before anything actually happens, it's important that you know what trenching operations are in your first due. What should we be looking for?
0: A normal view of your first due response area might find that there are some open trenches due for a lot of reasons. Uh, utility work, uh, we do have some sections of our first due response area where there are no overhead utilities. All the electricity runs on the ground, uh, including the fuel and the water. Road repairs could result in some trench work that's going to be done construction-wise on sewers as well could result in some trench work being done. And even some waterproofing of foundations at some point, digging out for new foundations, although they're excavations when they start. but Once the foundation is set and the waterproofing on the side of the foundations have to be done, it does leave a uh, good-sized trench that could have a significant collapse if it was left open too long.
1: Now, are we thinking primarily of workers being entrapped or civilians that are messing around?
0: Well, unfortunately, it can be a little bit of both. Most of the time, it's usually somebody employed to be doing that repair, but there have been times where homeowners have done this with the the right intention and have wound up in a position that they didn't want to be in. There's also been cases where rescuers have wound up in a very bad situation in the same predicament, not being trained and not having the right equipment to do what they need to do.
1: You suggest setting up zones on arrival. What does that mean? What does that entail? Well, when you first
0: arrive to an incident like this, understand that the scene has already been undermined, which means there's already been a collapse. And just like any other collapse, we don't want vibrations. And with the soil already being compromised, we can anticipate there to be a second collapse, especially due to the vibration of the apparatus that's running near the incident. If the trench is open near a right-of-way, in a roadway near a roadway where traffic hasn't been cut off yet, where there are utilities that have been done that are in the process of being installed. So everything has to stop around that hot zone. Now, that hot zone should at least start roughly within a hundred feet of where that incident is. I like to go about a hundred feet back. If it needs to be bigger, then we can always do that. I also like to have one area where access in and out of that hot zone, which we can call the warm zone if you like, will take place. So, so it's important to make sure that the entire hot zone is secure and to make sure nobody tries to enter that way. And then everything outside that entry point is what I would consider the cold zone.
1: Now, once we get all these set up and we're ready to go, how likely is it that the victim is not going to be visible from the ground level?
0: It's got a very, very high probability that that would be the case. It would depend on the depth of the trench, the size of the spoil pile that's, that's next to it, depends on the type of the collapse. When we talk about the size of the collapse, it also depends on how much soil we're talking about. We can talk about almost tons and tons of soil on top of a victim, depending on the size and the significance of the collapse. The average thoracic cavity on an adult, if you will, is about two and a half feet by two and a half feet, where we can get upwards of about a 1,000 pounds just directly around where that chest cavity is. So in the event that they are covered up, time is of the essence where you have to remove that, that weight off of them. There are times where they can be partially collapsed as well, and partially trapped. So the the likelihood of them being covered up is pretty high, and the downside is that they are mostly found in an upright position. At the rate that soil fails and falls down, it, it has been very common that victims have been found in an upright or almost in a running position. So when you go to dig these victims out, you're going down pretty deep.
1: And the first thing you're going to encounter is their head. Usually,
0: usually, most of the time. It is possible that the soil on impact of the victim can bend the victim over at the waist and you can wind up coming in contact with the victim's back or shoulder area or the back of their head area first. So it really depends on how the soil lands on the victim and where the victim winds up.
1: Is it likely that if all this happens, if the victim is buried, he didn't survive and we're talking about a recovery instead of a rescue?
0: Well, if we look at the numbers, it certainly would lean that way. The reality of it is once all that weight is around the thoracic cavity of the victim, once the victim exhales, the chest closes up, and that soil actually starts to impact around the victim's chest. So the intercostal muscles aren't really strong to inhale and expand the chest to a point where it will pick up a lot of that soil. So lots of the times, unfortunately, victims wind up suffocating due to the weight of the soil. However, there are chances, depending on how the soil has failed and how it's fallen into the trench, where victims have been found alive. Unfortunately, the numbers aren't on our side on that. So a, a very large majority of the time, the victim has, been, has expired before we've been able to get there.
1: Not that I think anybody would not do this, but I assume what you're saying by that is it's important to treat the scene as though the victim is still alive until you know he's not.
0: Agreed. Very important to understand that without some type of significant proof, you have to treat this like a rescue when you first arrive.
1: Tell me about soils. Why are, how and why are they classified?
0: The deal here is to identify the type of the soil that's involved with the trench so I can kind of get an idea of how the shoring is going to be built. And we use the OSHA categories when we respond. And we use four of them. First of all, for stable rock, very solid. It's a natural material that really has a lot of cohesiveness to it. It can be excavated, but it takes a lot of work to really take it apart it can pretty much sustain almost a vertical wall for a long period of time. So you require some pretty heavy agents to actually get it to open up. You're gonna need some pretty heavy equipment to get it to move. So it's pretty tough. In a, in a way, it's, 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 it's an advantage to the rescuer. The next we have is what we call class A. Soil has a compressive strength. It's the load per unit area at which the soil will fail when we put a compressive load on it. So if you think of it this way, we have people standing around the trench and the trench is open. And the soil is removed. Now, soil wants to compress against itself. It's just a foot, an act of nature. When that soil isn't there, when we put a downward force, like uh, a rescue, we're standing on that soil, that puts a compressive load, if you will, on top of that soil. So it's all about the cohesiveness. So class A soil is pretty strong. It'll hold about one and a half tons per square foot of actually footprint. When we get to class B soils, though, it's probably around a ton on the average per square foot, even can be half a ton. So, And this is really kind of a wet soil. Lots of the times we'll find water that's seeping from the trench walls in this type of soil. There are some dried out unstable rock that act the same way. And lots of the times when a trench has been disturbed, refilled and then dug again, lots of the times even really strong soil can be classified as class B soil. But most of the time when it comes to the collapse, we're dealing with class C soil. This has really no strength to it. Less than half a ton per square foot, you're talking about very sandy soils, and if you have an area where you have a lot of beachway or you have a lot of sand, if you're near the water, it's very possible that a lot of the soil you're going to deal with is Class C soil. Now, as a rule, from a rescue standpoint, we look at any collapse as Class C soil. It obviously collapsed once before. So when we go to shore it, we consider it Class C soil And when we follow the ocean charts, in their standard, we shore to those parameters, those strengths, uh, that size timber, those pressures that we use for our struts. All of that has to be taken into consideration. So we have to be able to identify the soil the first first few minutes so we know what kind of shoring we're going to put in place.
1: In your experience, what is the most common kind of collapse? Is it a situation where incorrect shoring was used by a construction crew is it one where simply something failed what do you typically find in a situation like this
0: the biggest issue that we've run into and i'm speaking from my experience and if you look at the ocean numbers it kind of mimics it the biggest problem people don't put shoring in like they're supposed to
1: so they get in a hurry and decide they're just going to go in there real quick and get out That's true. I've had
0: contractors tell me that it's faster to get into what we need to do than it is to even set the shoring up. I'm sure that's the case, but the reality of it is the safe way to do it and the legal, if you will, correct way to do it is to put in shoring. That being said, without it, most of the problem that we've encountered is a spoil pile slide. So the dirt that comes out of the trench is put in a pile, and we call that the spoil pile. The downside is OSHA requires that to be a minimum of two feet away from the trench lip. It really belongs a lot further back, but the minimum is two feet. Lots of the times the dirt is put right on the lip, and it it provides a compressive force that pushes down on the soil. And sometimes even the machine operator, by accident, can mistakenly knock part of the soil, pile back into the trench. Or lots of the times, even if they're installing something in this trench, accidents happen where the material they're installing falls. It's the spoil pile and takes part of the spoil pile side in it. The next one we see a lot of is the shear of the entire side wall, where a section of the wall breaks off. Lots of times you'll see fissure cracks along the edge of the trench. And you get a trench that's been open for a while. The sun kind of beats down on it. The moisture uh, kind of dries out of the soil. The soil becomes very brittle. And that's where we see the sidewall actually break off and can fall down. And they can come off in some pretty good sizes.
1: Yeah, I imagine it flakes off in the sheets.
0: Yeah, I've seen where even in training classes, we've had it, and it's one of the things that we really preach. You know, when we talk about training, there's a lot of things that we can plan for and avoid. But trench is one of the ones where if you're doing a lot of rescue training, especially in trench, you really have to have your eyes dotted and your teeth crossed. You're dealing with real live soil and anything can happen.
1: Have you ever gotten to a scene where you thought that it would be more expedient to throw a couple ladders on the ground to support some men go in there and drag them out rather than shoring it up? Or do you always go through all the procedures?
0: Well, it takes a little bit of work before we even start to shore. We go in and approach with ground pads that we can lay down on the ground to distribute the load. And when we first get there, there's a lot of things that have to happen. One, we have to find out what was the original size of the trench. Don't forget, we get there and if the patient's buried and there's soil already in the trench, how deep was the trench? How wide was the trench before the collapse? So I kind of have an idea how much soil we're dealing with. We also throw a meter in, an atmospheric monitor, to make sure that we're not dealing with any type of uh, gases or anything coming out of the soil themselves, just to make sure we don't have a flammable or an oxygen deficient atmosphere. Once that's in place, and the ground pads are put in place around the trench, then we can actually start putting ladders in the hole, but we can't get in the hole until we have a set of panels that are actually shored and in place. And that really depends on the type of the soil, the width and the depth of the trench as to how far spaced out these cross bracings are put in. So, it, it seems like it's a lot easier. I've been on scenes where, uh, when it comes to mind, I had a private contractor who was put in a sewer line, wound up hopping in a trench real quick to to try to make a quick repair to something he did. Spoil pile was left on the side of the, the trench. The trench was open for four days. It rained the night before heavily, which added a lot of water weight to the spoil pile. And we had a lip in where the lip of the trench failed and took part of the spoil pile in, and he was buried up to his stomach. He was flailing around with his hands, and it would seem, okay, we'll just jump in and dig him out and let him step up. But the reality of it was, it took us probably about, I was going to say, probably about an hour and a half to get the first set of panels in, in place where we felt comfortable to get in around. And that's not to say he can't help his own cause. I mean, he's got two good arms from a shovel. (laughs) Yeah. You you put him on the incentive plan, and you will. And here's the other problem when you have that much compressive force against the body, the body tends to release a lot of potassium. So even if we think we're doing something good by uncovering a victim so quick, what we like to do is we pace any type of compressive entrapment on a victim. We pace it by what the medical team is telling us. It's safe to uncover them. It's safe to move, safe to lift. So the first people that are usually in that hole on the floor when we can get them in are medical people that can actually treat the patient. They set the pace for us and how fast they can come out.
1: Now, you've been doing this for a while. What mistakes have you seen at trench rescue scenes where you just shook your head and said, oh, we shouldn't have done that, or they shouldn't have done that?
0: When it comes to, to any type of rescue, one of the one of the big issues is trying to do something that, that you're not 100% able to do. You certainly wouldn't recall with somebody who's not really good at knots. You certainly wouldn't go under a collapsed building with somebody who's not very good at shoring. Well, it's the same thing with trench. I've seen, and again, a lot of it is good intention. I don't want to sound like I'm playing down anybody's intentions, but I've seen where both contractors and emergency responders have put in less than significant shoring instead of using the right panels or using just whatever wood they have laying around. It's not spaced correctly. Uh, there's no atmospheric monitoring in place. There's a lot of secondary work that has to be done along while the trench team is actually putting the panels in place. It seems as though there's never enough time to do it right, but there's always enough time to do it over. When it comes to this kind of work, this is long-term work. If you're going to a trench incident, you're, you need to prepare to be there a while. It's going to take you a while. Again, our victim that was buried just up past his waistline took us about four and a half hours just to get him out.
1: You're in a position there where you can say to him, all right, just stay calm. It's going to take us a while, but you're going to be fine if you don't make a mess of it.
0: True. And, and lots of the times, it's it's well-meaning people who go in and try to make the incident better. <laughs> lots of times, our first priority is to get the people that are in the hole trying to help out of the hole. We know we're dealing with one victim, and we know everybody is trying to do the right thing with the best of intentions.
1: But you don't want to end up with even more victims from people who thought they were helping.
0: Absolutely. And there's enough work for everybody to do. So even if fire departments or emergency response teams wind up at these incidents, and even though they're not trained, you know, at the operations level or the technician level of trench rescue, there's plenty of work to be done. There's wood that needs to be cut. There's spoil piles that need to be removed. There's material that needs to be run back and forth to the hot zone. There's a patient packaging that needs to be done. There's medical work that needs to be done. There's if we need to rig an anchor to lift the patient out somehow, somebody has to get the victim out. So it might even require a certain number of firefighters or rescue people that are very good with broken packaging to be able to provide that packaging to get the victim out based on the injury. Not to mention This is a high-risk environment. We need a rapid intervention crew standing by with us as well, because if the trench collapses while we're working, who's there to get us? But there's a lot of people that really need to be in place.
1: Okay, Mike Daly, thanks for being with me on Code 3 today to talk about trench rescue safety.
0: Thanks again, Scott. Always a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invite.
1: And we put some more information about trench rescues on our website at code3podcast.com underground. Check it out. A reminder now, you can support this podcast by making a monthly pledge. If you get something out of Code 3, please help keep it going. A buck a month, five, ten, or even more. It all adds up. Just head over to Code3Podcast.com support to join the people who've already started supporting the show. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. This time we talked about trench rescue safety and techniques. What specific hazards have you encountered? How did you deal with them? I want to hear about it. Just email me. Just email me scott at code3podcast.com, or leave a voicemail at 562-337-9902. I'll read your comments and play them back on a future show. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more, and I hope you'll join me. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, stay safe. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To contact us, get more information on
0: today's topic, or subscribe to the podcast, go to Code3Podcast.com.